How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. Whoa, and I'm Jay. And you're listening to the Cinema Side Show podcast, episode 95. Uh, you, you jumped. You didn't was... jump the shark, but you jumped the gun. No. Because guns uh... are smaller than sharks. <laughs> so they're less of a jump. Well, you're jumping out of the gate with some serious comedy right there, buddy. Thank you. I like to be comedic. Speaking of jumping out of the gate, are you ready for your 1995 film quote, Jay? Yes, I am. And I'm on the losing team. Well, I'm hoping this so, will be. Uh, I'll no. be. I'll be free for free if I get this correct. If you get this correct, yes. Well, we Wait, will be doing right? this director yes. in the coming weeks. That'll be my first hint to try and get you back in the game. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, not this week, but in the next five episodes, we will do this director. All right. Interesting. Okay. Because I want to get you back on the winning side. Yeah, so I'm for just sure. giving you a little. Uh, Hopefully, I've seen this in that case. <laughs> uh, I believe you have. All right. Let's Are go. you ready? I'm ready. Okay. I've got a couple here. A couple of quotes. Like, as per norm. Yeah. I'm going to start with the harder ones and lead into the <laughs> we'll get easy- obvious. We'll get easier as we go along. <laughs> okay. All right. A woman so ugly on the inside she couldn't bear to go on living if she couldn't be beautiful on the outside. A drug dealer. A drug dealing pedicist. Actually, let's not forget a disease spreading whore. Only in a world this shitty could you even try to say these were innocent people and keep a straight face. Oh, dude. I know. Is this seven? Jake, is that your. I think that's seven. It is John Doe from Seven. Yay! You got it on the first quote. I got it. Well, that's a bit a of a monologue. Quote. It's a monologue. That's a long. You only got, had to get through the first third of the monologue, though. Well, it's funny because I started thinking, "My, like, oh, well, who, who we?" So for the audience, we're episode ninety-five. We actually know everything we're doing up to episode hundred. Yes. So I was going for all the directors in my head who were covering, and mm-hmm. then all the films that came out in nineteen ninety-five, and cross-reference the two, and yeah. then that quote was very familiar. I was like, very dark, very dirty quote. Absolutely. And uh, it all came together. So, yeah, that is David Fincher. A little preview. You're right, Zeke, mm. for the future of the podcast. Yeah, we don't, we're not going to tell you which episode that is. No, but it could be anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How you doing, Jake? Yeah, I'm all right. I've been busy. I've been real busy, actually. So yeah, I haven't... You'll be cl- talking a bit about it later in the show, I Absolutely. Imagine. So, um, I haven't caught a lot. I mean, this actually ties in perfectly with the, the first film of the week that I saw. So, uh, n- not to get too political in the show, but obviously the last week we've had the the U.S. election. Well, the results from it, The yes. results have just come through. Well, that's the thing. It started last, for us in Australia, it started on Wednesday, was when the uh, all the votes started coming in and mm-hmm. they started counting the states. And um, it took almost a full week for them. And even so, it's the media that have called the race. Mm-hmm. It's definitely looking like Biden's going to beat Trump in the race. And... Uh, Trump's not going to concede anytime soon. That's, I said it on Facebook. I don't know if you saw this, but I said this is going to be the most interesting time period between now or... I said this right before he got announced as a president-elect, uh, Biden's inauguration in late January. Mm-hmm. It's going to be very interesting. But anyway, with all of that going on, I watched... This was before any of this started. Mm-hmm. This was before last Wednesday. I watched Totally Under Control, which is a brand new doco that I think they've put up sort of for free on a service called Doc Play. So this is a streaming service 
for just documentaries. Okay. Which is really interesting. So I got the the uh, the free month service. So I'm gonna have to remember to cancel that because I mm-hmm. don't know if I'm gonna stick with the service. We'll see. Uh, but yeah, the documentary is called Totally Under Control and it's entirely about the US's response to coronavirus earlier this year. And it did remind me a lot of the Stan documentary Trumped, mm-hmm. which was all about, and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, a documentary about how, sort of not the how, but just the timeline of, of Trump's campaign to winning the 2016 election. That's sort of when the doco ends. And a lot of people criticize that doco for being too quick. Like it came out only a couple of months after. Uh, this one, I think it's, it gets away with it a little bit more because there's still a lot of concrete evidence mm-hmm. of like, hey, this is how the US system completely botched in several different ways their response to COVID. And mm-hmm. we're lucky, Z. We live in good old Western Australia. Yes. Um, we've only got, I think, I mean, we haven't had a community case in like seven months now, mm-hmm. but uh, the US is obviously still struggling. They're getting record numbers even today. And what, what they focused on mostly was the it was comparing it to South Korea's response because they both got their first COVID cases on the exact same day. Okay. So it's very interesting to compare and contrast those two. And what I found interesting, <clears throat> excuse me, is that South Korea's population is fifty one million people. Yeah. Uh, and they have two date. So this was about I would say last Sunday's when I checked this, they had about four hundred and sixty eight deaths to counteract that. While the US has a population of three hundred twenty eight million with, at the time, 236,000 deaths. So that's roughly six and a half times the population in South Korea versus 500 times the population in the U.S. So uh, comparing those two is like, well, the U.S. definitely had a not as good of a yes response. Um, and I thought the documentary was really well done. Uh, that actually... It was really cool how they went about shooting it because they basically had these self-built rigs, mm-hmm. camera rigs that they could send to like specialists and the people that were going to interview, uh, so that it was all done safely. Considering that this is taking place in the US in 2020, I think they promoted it as like it was shot in secret, which mm-hmm. I guess makes sense. But was it a big secret? Oh, they're making mm. a coronavirus documentary. Who knew? <laughs> Who <laughs> I did? imagine there'll be a few in the next oh. in the coming years. Oh yes, there will be. But um, this was definitely an interesting look at that and again comparing those two countries and specifically how um, there was no transparency from the Trump administration how the CDC and the scientists and the American people were all at odds with each other in terms of you know what was the best response and uh, all the delays with the testing the delays with the masks mm-hmm. just all of these back to back to back issues that thankfully Zeke you and I had not had to deal with with no, our people no, we've been blessed um, but these people had to deal with it so I definitely recommend it. I think you are going to get charged a $1 fee for something called Anime Lab. I don't know what that is, but they charged me a dollar. I was like, I thought this was a free service, you suckers. But um, anyway, I watched one other film, but I'll I'll roll it over to you first. Zeke, what did you watch this week? Okay, so I have watched a couple things. Um, I've also had a relatively busy week. Yep. Um, this was my... Yeah, we'll talk about that a bit later. Um, but I did actually manage to catch uh, four films, not including the film of the week, Ooh, so five nice. in total. Um, excuse me. Um, that nose. It's raining outside. It is. Yeah, it's November it's amazing. in Perth, and it's raining. So that's crazy. Thank God. <laughs> um, I caught a uh, couple of uh, films that were in the seldom category. I'll start with the seldom, work my way up to the nicer films, because honestly, I watched gotcha. a film... This week, that was cracking and amazing. Cracking. and Banging. Definitely up there with Hopping. one of the best films I've watched this year. 
So, um, I watched a documentary also uh, called White Boy, which followed... Oh, this is uh, on Netflix, isn't it? This just got added to Netflix. Nice. Um, it's a crime documentary talking about uh, the selling of cocaine in America, in particularly in Detroit. Um, and America's not getting a good rap on this podcast. Oh, no, they're not. <laughs> um, back in the 1980s and about this uh, young teenage uh, white kid that got into the into the trade and sort of got what the documentary frames it as if he has been set up because he was actually an FBI informant and sort of was the fall guy for crimes committed by a lot of other people and sort of has uh, been okay. wrongly sentenced to a long period of time and it's sort of the reevaluation of his sentence and how we came to today um and uh it's fine i actually think it's a bit um ironically substanceless um so because it's substances and Um, you're talking about drugs and i (laughs) and i just feel like it doesn't do anything particularly different okay the very standard uh, very standard you know like it doesn't try to be ambitious it doesn't try anything with its pieces to camera it's very much like you know a, a very full frame 35 very standard left to right side skewing you know um there are a couple of animations in there but they're pretty average compared to some other documentaries that have quite ambitious and creative mm. they, it lacked create a creative flair and okay. well, the you... content didn't compensate for the lack of creative flair right well that, that's a good point because i was going to say you know i feel certain docos if the content is right if the interviews are right it doesn't matter how it's shot as long as mm-hmm. it's interesting Absolutely. and but do you want this i mean i don't know anything about the stocker but do mm-hmm. you want it to have flair considering it's like it feels like a dark sort of documentary i wanted to have some form of creative edge and not just have a lot of collection of piece for the most part right. it's a collection of pieces to camera Okay, so it just gets tiresome, and I see bit what linear, you mean. A bit too linear. Okay, yeah. that's fine. Lacked lacked uh, archival or B roll coverage to stimulate, and documentaries can have that problem. Is it like my, the Michael Jackson doco? Just drone over his house. Well, I, I still haven't seen it, but yeah, <laughs> your uh, review of that very similar. I mean, uh, it comes back to take things like yeah, you know, we both really enjoyed the fire documentary, and that comes mm. back to framing and at the end of the day the premise is not exactly super intriguing on the surface it's no, the diving the in. execution and the way they told the story was this it made it a fascinating Absolutely. journey yeah yeah exactly um the other one i watched was eat pray love um oh yeah you told me you're gonna watch this one so in continuation with i did talk about normal heart the week prior i believe or the week maybe not week That's, yeah the week it prior. sounds that sounds right the yeah the week, week prior, prior. And that sounds like a film in it. I felt in pretty itself. positive about that one. Um, not s- as much with Eat, Pray, Love. It definitely felt more like a uh, uh, sort of a middle-age, targeted demographic sort of film. Like the films that, you know, like your best exotic marigold hotels, your mm. Love Actuallys. They're sort of... Ah, uh, okay. They're, they're, you're not going to... You're not going to... There's not a lot to criticise, but there's also not a lot to praise so So i've heard about this film slash book eat pray i always thought it was like a self-help book 
Mm-hmm. Is that what like this movie is? What's well, a journey of self help? So oh, okay. you're you're okay. in the ballpark. Okay. Um. So following the uh, termination of sort of a what was a love film marriage that's filtered into resentment. Um. Julia Roberts's character goes on a sort of a pilgrimage of self identity, mm. where she goes to Italy. She she eats. She prays. She loves. Um. So in Italy, I do she... one of those three things. <laughs> you can have a guess <laughs> which um, one it is. So she goes to Italy and she finds a more cultural footing, and you know the eat comes from obviously the delicacies and the enjoying of the, that sort of culture. The prey is her journey and pilgrimage to India, where she fi- you know follows the the journey of a guru, and then she ends up in Bali, which is in Bali, which I find funny, <laughs> the funniest part because. <laughs> It's like the way they make Bali this place of enlightenment and beauty and it's just like there's no Australians in a Bintang t-shirt and stuff like that. Yeah, it, doesn't, it doesn't accurately portray well, it's, it's Bali just not what that we, you and I know. Like, you and I do not know Bali as a place, place of spiritual enlightenment right? in our culture, in Australian culture. It's the place where people go for a cheap holiday, mostly. Cheap tattoo as well. <laughs> yes. So a lot of people get their tattoos if they don't have more than a hundred bucks to spend on one. Yeah, and she falls in love with Javier Bardem, which is nice to see Javier oh, Bardem nice. or something. Um, he, how, how is he as like a romantic comedy lover? It's kind of funny because you just picture him as like Sugar or like from No Country for Old Men or, or the guy, the bad guy from Skyfall. Well, it's weird because my, in, in not even for Old Country for Old Men, and my first thought was, oh, he was in Mother with Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> that, I thought of that film before No Country for Old Men for some yeah, reason. Yeah, that's a shame. <laughs> uh, I like Mother, but yeah, it's fair yeah, enough. Yeah, but it's no No Country for Old Men. No, it's not. Certainly not. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't have anything too bad to say about it. I just unfortunately don't have all that much to offer in terms of critical. I didn't. I enjoyed it enough. That's like it, good. It didn't feel slow or. It's tamed. funny. It's funny you mentioned love actually, because I sort of. I mean, I saw that, like you know, the old girlfriend dragged me to the, the night mm. in theater or the outdoor theater to watch it sort of situation. So yeah. it seems like a theme is going on, mm-hmm. but um, that was one of the things I was like, I enjoyed it, but I was. I think I watched it a little too early while I was just confused by the structure and mm-hmm. um, I was like, oh, it's, it's a TV show for the expanding stories. I love Love, actually. i got to give it another go because I think I didn't quite get it the first Maybe time. Maybe that could be our next year's Christmas episode. Oh, that's not a bad idea. Yeah. I already have a pitch for our Christmas episode. I know. You're going to like it. I'm, I'm keen you're, to hear it. You're going to like it a lot, but, I reckon. Um, yeah, uh, did you catch anything else? Yeah, so the, the only other film I watched, excluding the film of the week, so obviously... Spoilers for later in the show. We're going to talk a bit more about Catherine Bigelow. Uh, so I wanted to catch at least one other film of hers uh, before just to get, just to get a hint. And the one I've always yeah. wanted to watch was Zero Dark Thirty, which came out in twenty twelve, and of course is sort of about the, the capturing and, and and murder of Bin Laden. We're getting very political in this show, <laughs> aren't we? Z? Yeah. Uh, I guess this is the kind of episode we're having. And I I liked it a lot. It reminded me of the Hurt Locker in a sense that there was some very interesting sort of political commentary being placed. It felt like when the film started, it's like, oh, this is really interesting because it's about violence beginning violence and mm-hmm. the inhumane acts of, like, torture and stuff. Um, but then by the end, it sort of started slipping into that, it's a chronological story about them killing Bin Laden. It felt, it got quite conventional, which was strange because I feel like The Hurt Locker is absolutely not a conventional film at no. all. 
that but I still respect the you know the direction it took and, and how Catherine Bigelow handled it. It was actually written by Mark uh, Boyle Bale B O A L, uh, who was a frequent collaborator of hers. He he also wrote the Hurt Locker uh, for clarification, and I had a bit of a issue with his script. I thought it was well structured because it it mm. felt. It, you know when you watch Zodiac and it, it's sort of a little all over the place to the point where you're like it feels like this is based on the real events yeah because it's a little bloated in areas and the story kind of takes some weird turns and it's like it's because they didn't pull a David Fincher and, and find well ironically that is Fincher's film but what I mean mm-hmm. is like they didn't fine tune everything to make it super linear and it's like it actually feels a little bloated in the sense that this feels like the real story or an accurate recounting of the story. Mm-hmm. But his dialogue really threw me off, which was strange, because we're not talking about The Hurt Locker yet, but it's like, in comparison to that, I thought the dialogue was really weird in Zero Dark Thirty. I thought there was a lot of times where you know you have these bureaucracy people and CIA and stuff, but they're using the words bro and dude and, you know, 5,000 bucks instead of dollars and stuff. It threw me off a little They're bit. a little too informal. Exactly. That's the exact word. A little too informal. And I think that kind of threw me off. But it very well made film and there's a particular scene I'm going to save it for later when we're talking about the mm-hmm. film of the week um, that I think is a, is a staple in, in Catherine Bigelow's films that I thought was absolutely excellent but um, yeah I thought it was a good film Zero yeah. Dark Thirty no worries well the only other two I caught this week um, I both felt very strongly about both these the first one was okay. a Dustin Hoffman Robert Redford 1976 Ooh. picture All the President's Men which I guess how sort y- of how young was um, Hoffman in this 1976, so graduate was 67, so this is about 10 years after the graduate. Yeah, roughly. Okay, interesting. Um, Obviously, big, huge fan of Robert Redford, Um, and this film was by Alan J. uh, Pakula, um, and who did Sophie's Choice, is probably his other most prominent film. I've still never seen Sophie's Choice. Neither have I, but obviously... I really want to see it. I feel like I've been spoiled it, though. But that's okay. I, I have not. Um, but this is <laughs> definitely probably his most critically praised film. All the President's Men, I sat on a four out of five for this one. Okay. It's an excellent film that follows the investigations into Nixon's Watergate scandal. Oh. Following uh, the Washington Posts and these, obviously, Hoffman and Redford's... It's sort of like Spotlight before Spotlight, I think. It's the seventy, the 76 version of Spotlight. Well, the year that it came out... So I don't remember the exact year that the Watergate scandal happened. 73. 73. Yeah, 72, well, it's, sorry. It's quite early. Yeah. It was only a couple of years quick, later, quick, really. Quick turnaround. Yeah. Um, it has, obviously, yeah, like I said, Redford and Hoffman in it, giving A-grade performances. It also has Gene Hackman. So, oh, nice. I believe My it boy. is. I think it's Gene Hackman. I'll have to double-check that. But You gotta... Confirming with Zeke. Because I thought it was, That's but I think I might be wrong on this one. Oh. You know Jason Clark is in Zero Dark Thirty? I did just see that in the casting. Yeah, yeah. sorry, not Gene Hackman, begging my pardon. That's so. He's very good. And Chris Pratt, before his big blowout in 2014. He played... He might have actually been... Saw no Sam, I also saw um, Joel Edgington in there too. Yeah. It's, uh, a, good, uh, it's a good damn cast. Mark yeah, Strong. so this was a really impressive, excellent sort of like... Mm. like Felt very Spotlight-esque, obviously, with, like, the 76 version. Yeah. Um, and the other film I caught this week was If Sp- Beale Street Could Talk. And, Ooh. And this has just that? been added to Netflix, and it was post-post excellent. Very Some nice. of the best cinematography I've seen all year. 
some of the best colour schemes I've seen all year. Um, and some really solid performances. Was it as good as Blind Spotting? Was it as good as... Hmm. You know, I I have to throw it in there with that category because obviously it's... Was it better than Sorry to Bother You? It's probably on par with Sorry to Bother You, but it's maybe probably even a bit better than that. But I feel not like as... Sorry to Bother You is a different kind of story, though. Yes, but they're all cinema of the other, I find. Yeah, they, the... they definitely are within that, but I feel like... I don't... So tell me a bit about the story of... of um. Beale Street could talk. Okay. Because I know it's it's um, the same dude who did Moonlight, Barry Jenkins, right? Yes. Oh, and I did actually bring up Moonlight in my conversation. I think it's better than Moonlight, so... Oh, you just said it was the other opposite. No, no, it's better than Wait. Moonlight, but it's not as good as Blind Spotting. Oh, uh, I see what you're saying. So, there you if go. Beale Street could talk, Jake, uh, after her fiancé is falsely imprisoned, a pregnant African-American woman sets out to clear his name and prove his innocence. Okay. So, I would love for you to watch this film. I would love to cover maybe even this film on the show if we ever had a time for it. Um, Maybe that time has just missed the window for this one, but maybe you could, this could, we could get a Moonlight re-review and go with both of them. Yeah, because we we haven't done an episode of Moonlight yet. No, I personally think this was better than Moonlight. Mm. Um, I thought Moonlight was still excellent, but this is just, oh, you're playing playing the the trailer. Whoops. Get a copyright in there. Um, <laughs> I think the music in this was just as strong, so I don't know if they're the same composer. I haven't checked. Uh, performances are great. Colour is the thing that I love the most about this film, I think. Okay. I think the colour, the saturated hues, and the, the real... Uh, for this one, in Moonlight, it's very much the blues and pinks. Um, yeah. They're the big, the big pool. Um for this, it's yellows and blues. Mm. So it's very warm, cool colour palette. And a little more contrasting as well. Yeah. Um, like blue and pink go pretty well together. but And I would say probably even blue and orange would be pushing more into that crimson. But yeah, I really enjoyed this film. Um, it's probably one of uh, the best films I've caught this year so far. Very nice. So Out of really... a good, what, 260, 270 274. Now? Jesus. Jesus Christ, guys. So I would love for you to check that one out. But it has some great performances, yeah, great music, sure. great cinematography. Well, Moon- Moonlight's excellent, so I'm, I'm very happy to watch it. And I heard I that's, re- that's one of the more underappreciated like Oscar buzz films of that year. It was. So um, I'll be happy to check it out. No worries. Well, I guess it's time to move into career sections. Jake, do you want to fill us in with your career update? Sure. Uh, so, yeah, the reason I've been super busy this last week is I've joined another set, so I'm working on a film called Work From Home right now, mm. which I pulled it out. Something you weren't doing, actually, though. No, I never work from home. <laughs> That's I have to, because i got to edit from home, sadly. Uh, no, and ironically, this was actually titled Work From Home before the pandemic. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It sounds a bit funny, but um, they've actually been trying to get this up for ages. Uh, so I got a bit of a log line. I'll just quickly read it. So Work From Home takes place in Australia, 100 years in the future, where temperatures have grown too hot to venture outside. The privileged few live, work, and sleep inside cramped pods, cared for by an oppressed working cl- class. The protagonist, Mags, dreams of a better world, but quickly finds herself caught up in the horrific crime and on the run. So, uh, this is a long... I don't want to say how many pages it is. It's a lot of pages. And it's a looking, lot of pages. We're looking at about 15 uh, days of shooting. Mostly half days, to clarify. But it's it's a big process. So, been working... We did five days straight. Mm-hmm. Mostly four or five-hour shoots. Uh, so, we've done a big chunk of 
I just don't want, I don't want to say too much, you know, it's not my place to spoil things, but mm. um, we've done a big chunk of the interior stuff. Uh, we did that Subiaco Art Center, which was really nice. I think mm. I mean, this was the first time I've ever worked on, like, in a stage, like on a, on a set, like a set that was built for the production. I think it was the first time I've ever had that. Yeah, I mean, I, I would have just been a month removed from my first time with that sort of yeah. happening too. Because we had our hospital room. Yeah. Because I knew that. I, I can't think of another one. What about the tent? If you count that. Well, I, I didn't attend that one. Oh. I wasn't yeah. at that shoot. So, yeah. um, yeah. No, because I, I was there for the exteriors for that film. But, yeah. So, anyway. Uh, five days on this film. A lot of fun. Um, I actually get this week off, which is good. Because the next location they're shooting, it's another studio, I think. But uh, they're still sort of iffy with COVID numbers and mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, so my role is I'm doing all the behind the scenes recording, but I'm also helping with second AC and first AC whenever yeah. like, there's a lot of shifting parts. Cause it is like a production. It's taking place over a month. So a lot of people are shifting in and out of roles. Of course. Yeah. Um, so I'm helping camera otherwise shooting my own video. But, uh, so I get this week off because I'm, I'm not essential Zeke. I'm not essential on the work from home set. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you can just literally work from home. Yeah, but the ba 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 ba. Exactly. Um, no, so I'll be back in probably a couple of weekends to help finish the film. But it's been a lot of fun, and it's really uh, good. <laughs> really good stuff. Cool. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I don't really have all that much to add for myself. Mm. Um, this time last week we had uh, just wrapped up on my last set. Yeah, no, we wait. We so we recorded. This is confusing. We recorded between two days of you shooting this film but the podcast didn't go live until after you wrapped that's it that's the stuff so that's what happened <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i finished on my final uh set in the month of being on sets the uh, november gigs well they were october, october, yeah, gigs, more october yeah, gigs um so that last one i was the director of photography for a short film cascade mm. Um, it's my first time ever stepping into purely just the DOP role. Um, right. So you're the head of department on this one and just one department. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. You're not head of seven departments at once. (laughs) No. Um, and I really enjoy, I, I've like, I was saying to you off air, I've really enjoyed shifting gears into that department. I think that might be the department where I find myself spending a lot more time because, it's the one I feel the most comfortable in, definitely, and I find the most e- engaging. Mm. Obviously, you know, with growing, you know, growing with film and and growing in in off, you know, both off this podcast and you know, different directions and stuff. It's definitely the role that has kind of brought me back into the fold. So yeah. I really enjoy that. Um, and yeah, it went really well. And obviously, now I'm I'm moving into editing. Uh, uh, a documentary on brain aneurysm survivors so that's pretty much taken up most of my time and hopefully that'll the shorter version of that will be done in the next two or three weeks okay so you're doing two versions yes supplement the, the extended uh, cut the, the extended cut um, you'll, you'll see the there's a lot cut of juicy lot of, yeah yeah and that showcase is coming up towards the end of the month which i'm sure both you and i will yeah well, attend you and talk about you gotta let me know what the what the date is and our i show i Personally, don't even know it yet. It's on a, it's up and around Murdoch Uni on posters. Also, oh, they have a date set. They, they have some, yeah. Okay, something. we gotta, we gotta look that up. And you know what we gotta do as well. Um, completely 
off the show aside, uh, one of the films we're doing in the next five episodes, um, we got to lock that in by, uh, we should buy our tickets tonight to that screening. Because if we don't, there's a good chance we might miss that film. Intense. Intense. So, uh, we'll have to talk about that off the air. I might write a note actually now. It's all right. I guess it's time to move into our latest director's corner and the film of the week. But Jake, who's the director and what are we watching? So this week, as uh, we mentioned earlier, we're going to be talking about Catherine Bigelow. And uh, I think it's time to talk about her film, The Hurt Locker. Welcome to Camp Victory. Oh, Camp Victory? I thought this was Camp Liberty. Oh, no, they changed that about uh, a week ago. Victory sound better. All right. So what do you got? The car has been parked illegally. The suspension is sagging. There's definitely something heavy in the trunk. Interesting. What's he doing? I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die comfortable. How many bombs have you disarmed? 873. 873? You're a wild man, you know that? Oh, that was too bad. Our first time working together? What do you think? I think us working together means I talk to you and you talk to me. Are you going on a date, Sanborn? Sergeant William James is tasked with training a bomb disposal team during the Iraq War. His ideologies and reckless approach towards the job gives rise to conflicts with his subordinates. This film was directed by Catherine Bigelow. Bigelow. And is our latest, our 19th director in the director's corners. And yeah, so I had to have a quick peruse of the films I've seen from Catherine Bigelow. I've seen three, including this film. Really? Yes. Okay, I didn't realise you'd seen any other films of hers. I just had to quickly retcon that, so you've probably had a peruse. This, This is great then. Yes. So and I've was... seen two I don't think you've seen. No, well, the only films I've seen of hers, unfortunately, I know we're doing a director's corner, is this film and the one I just watched, Zero Dark Thirty, so... I've managed to catch two other films from her that you haven't seen then. Okay. Which is good. And one of them is actually one of my favourite guilty pleasure films, so... Is it the Keanu Reeves one? It's the Point... It's Point Break. <laughs> I, I really wanted to watch that this week. adore Point Break. Wow. Like, next level adore Point Break. I've watched Point Break at least ten times. Wow. It's okay. my favourite Patrick Swayze film, and it's probably, before John Wick, was my favourite Keanu Reeves film. Whew. More than The Matrix, more than... Definitely more than The Matrix. Have you seen Speed? I haven't. I I doubt... I mean, Speed's a great film. I doubt it's going to change your mind on Keanu Reeves. You gotta let me ride, man. <laughs> it's the coolest film. I've heard... I read the letterbox reviews, and yeah, it seems like one of those, like... This is just so cool and cheesy and, like... People just love it. Yeah. Because of that. Yeah, you gotta... Yeah. When you know what you're getting. And the other one is the Liam Neeson, Sean Connery film, K-19. Well, is the that... No, that's not a director's debut. Because here's... This is what I realised. She's worked with a lot of great actors. Yeah. Because she worked with... I think it was um Willem Dafoe's first ever film. She worked with him on that. Really? And I think that was her first feature as well. And then, yeah, you're right. There's that one um, with Liam Neeson. Obviously, this film has... I didn't realise how many Avengers were in this film. Yes. So, uh, K-19, The Widowmaker, is a, it's a submarine film. Yep. It's actually a pretty solid film. It was one of those films that I found in like a discount bin for like a dollar, and I was mm. like, gosh. You know, and it's... Uh, uh, it's, sorry, it's Harrison Ford and Liam Neeson, not Sean Connery. Um, did you say Sean Connery? I did. I have Freudian slip because... Oh. Sean Connery did pass R. away R. in the last Sean week. Sean Connery. Um, it's a solid film. There's absolutely 
yeah, there's not. It's just a really easy watch, kind of a good action sort of thriller. Um, yeah, you know, it's basically a about when a Russian, the first Russian nuclear submarine launched, it had a malfunction, and it's just a sort of a disaster, sort of underwater Titanic film with a yeah. bunch of. Well, it seems like there's this common theme with a lot of her films, very uh, military, pol- very military focused with a lot of political commentary. I mean, mm. even she did that Detroit film with uh, John B. John Boyega, Jesus Christ, Jake, mm. and um like that it took it away from the Middle East which was nice because she's obviously done a couple of films there now but yeah there definitely seems to be a theme with that and I think that's really cool because I did some more research on her and, and she's actually even though she is the to this day still November 2020 she is still the only woman to ever win Best Director at the Academy Awards which for is pretty Hurt shocking Locker, right? or- yeah for, for this film for The Hurt Locker and this film won like six Academy Awards and won Best Picture uh, which I could be wrong about this, but this might also be the only best picture directed by a woman. I could be wrong. I feel like there might have been one. I think you're more. pretty close. I think you're, I think you're at least to my knowledge. I probably yeah. should have double checked. Definitely best director, uh, and also one like best editing, best original screenplay, um, best sound. I think which the sound design is incredible in this film. We'll we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she definitely has uh, a type, which is great to see sort of this. It's definitely got a feminist perspective. This is a very toxic masculinity-based film. <laughs> yeah, which is sort of part of its crowning achievement. I mean, I yeah. think it works both ways, that if a director can really immerse themselves in their polarising gender mm. um, and do it, to a, honestly, to appease the, you know, the polarising gender to a point where they don't feel like anything's forced scripted or artificial that's a crowning achievement of any director for, for a, sure for a male director to create a feminist film or for a you know female to create a toxic masculinity film they're both achievements in their own right because yeah it's it's pure empathy at that point like well, it just reminds me of stuff like when you watch gone girl and you're like oh this was written by a woman mm-hmm. and she wrote the novel you know it's like stuff like that it's like oh it's a bit of an interesting change perspective is like okay now i'm seeing it from this side and i think what makes her so special is i've read a quote where she talked about i think people question why she never mentioned it when she went up and got the best director award at the i think it was the mm-hmm. 2010 academy awards because this film came out quite later mm-hmm. like it was a 2018 film but it came out super late in the u.s and, yes um and people said she didn't say anything she didn't mention the fact that she's the first woman to win the oscar mm-hmm. and i think part of that was that she never saw herself as a feminist filmmaker or as, as a female director, period. Well, I mean, if you look at... Which I appreciate a lot. And I can... I mean, I could probably attest to that because if you honestly look at... Well, obviously, and Letterboxd does prioritise their most prominent films at the yes. top, generally. I Based mean, on Hurt- how many people have seen it, the ratings, average, yeah. like... Yeah. You know, right. the top three are The Hurt Locker, Zero Dark Thirty, and Point Break, and then Detroit. Yeah. So, which all have male protagonists... Yeah. And a predominantly male cast, and so, I mean, with the exception of literally like one character, there's a, there's no women in this film. Period. You got yeah. the wife on who the gets phone. ten minutes at the end too. Yeah, and ten if yeah, if <laughs> even that. if that zero dark thirty, I guess has Jessica Chastain's character. That's true. Um, but even watching that, I never got that. There was never a scene where like she was laughed out of the room by the men or anything. It it felt more like she was 
look down on for her role more than any like gender specific thing. Um, so that is a exception to the rule. But in Point Break, so, the, it's very much she's just the romantic interest, pretty yeah. much. That's her character. So uh, it's very much focused on the men. And you know, it's funny to have that such a you know we've got good coverage here. We've got five films from her. Between, she, yeah, between there's not two. a single time I've felt her the way she's written or at least directed male characters has been forced or wrong like point break yeah like it it's kind of a bit more cheesy campy fun mm. compared to the other ones in a way generally more grounded in their militant seriousness and yeah. political statements but the characters don't feel artificial they feel like beach no. bums they feel like oh in that film yeah they feel like yeah. kind of beach bum caricatures and it's sort of plays perfectly into the tone about surfers who rob banks i mean that's the premise right i mean let's be realistic here the, the characters <laughs> are going to all be a little hammy by just the the premise so yep. whereas obviously the zero dark 30 is about killing bin laden this film is very it's very grounded in its iraqi war sort of bomb defusal like premise k19 yeah. was very much just a you know militant submarine drama mm. you know the, these films they're very grounded and they're very real and they're trying to be real and I think this film in particular because I can't quite remember too much about K-19 cinematography but the election to use a verifocal lens approach which mm. you know um, that shaky handheld the critical focus never changes no matter how far they punch in or punch out zoom wise there's very little uh, artisan cinematography going on here it's very much mm -hmm. just more documentary eastern european observer it is a thousand percent very documentary style and, and cinema yeah. verte all, the, all that jazz and i didn't realize that this film was shot on 16 uh, millimeter which oh, i couldn't have picked that makes sense makes perfect sense yeah. and i think what they did so i was reading a bit about the production of this and this was a hellish production from what i read we could tell yeah well i can imagine oh for sure and i think for, for starters, I think they had four 16mm or super 16mm cameras running at any given time to capture a lot of the um, coverage. And they were sort of specifically breaking the 180 rule and very specifically putting it in sporadic places where you can barely tell the geography of the location, mm -hmm. uh, where in the edit you can make it super sporadic and, and sort of moving uh, at, at a, such a fast pace that... And you see, I usually have problems with films that are too fast-paced, that mm -hmm. are the action's too shaky. I had zero problem with the way this is done if it was like a very controlled chaos in the way it's shot in the the cinematography yeah and i mean if we want to talk about i think the cinematography is a huge part of this film mm. um and it is definitely one of its stronger elements because of its deliberate choices but this film is allowed to breathe too yes yes and that's I'm one of excited its... <laughs> No, I was just saw your rating, and I was like, I was like, I thought I really liked it. Oh yeah, I went uh, back and gave a new rating. Um, yep. And I think this film's downtime is some of its stronger points because mm -hmm. they help pace. Which I mean, you would think at first. I mean, you you look at the the prologue scene, which yes. is basically establishing this bomb defusal team, and leads to the death of the team leader, but. It's all a prologue Poor to show Pierce. the... <laughs> R.O.P. Guy Pierce. Is it Guy Pierce? It was, yeah. Wow. 
Gotta feel sorry for poor guy he is. Um, <laughs> but it, it's very much trying to capture. You know, it's a very long drawn out sequence with the robot and yep. and getting to know this crew. Um, just to give that weight, it's basically a short film in its own right. Yes, that, uh, that, absolutely. That, that, uh, that prologue, which is excellent, um, and it just it captures everything and it captures the danger that one of these explosives has. Yeah, how dangerous uh, this whole situation is, and how close it can, and how quickly it can deteriorate from funny joking around talking about eating a burger mm. to. Uh, complete and utter serious tonal switch frantic but then the film allows us to slowly uh, breathe with characters too like mm. the uh, you know the second time we jump back into a bomb defusal situations with Jeremy Renner's character yep. and one of my favourite shots of the film is that top down shot where he discovers that it's not oh, one bomb several. and he pulls it up and yeah. eight of them come up that's our podcast thumbnail it's one of the best shots of the film because yeah, it just shows incredible. we've seen what one of these can do yeah and Renner's just pulled up ten of them this whole film is so beautifully made from a tension standpoint there is so much it's tension honestly in each scene. the best construction of military tension i've ever seen mm. in a film and it really i saw i mean letterbox loves this film a lot and obviously it got you know the high range it did and all the academy awards mm. and everything i saw some um less than kind letter uh, letterbox comments or reviews that were just saying stuff like oh the eod guys in a sniper battle Pff, give me a break that's not realistic or they're complaining about the continuity edits and stuff and i'm just reading that stuff I'm like first off you're not fun at parties <laughs> no, but second of all, it's like it. I don't care how specific. Oh, is this sniper shot unrealistic? Oh, it took him only two shots to get that guy from eight hundred meters. But it took like, him two shots over the course of about four hours. Well, that's the thing. It's, it's like a the, huge disparity the, of time. I don't care about the specifics of like how a gun's used and stuff. If the filmmaking at hand is so well crafted in creating tension where you're worried about these characters yeah and i think it comes back to at the end of the day you and i watch this film we have no military knowledge except mm. what is given to us because we're not military men no. now i can and any film that undertakes any sort of service or profession needs to handle it to it with a degree of care, but at the end of the time, it is a cinematic experience above everything. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this trial of Chicago 7 just a mm -hmm. few weeks ago, where it's like, that film, the goal was to be entertaining but thought-provoking. Yeah. And it did that by skewing some of the events and the timeline and stuff. Mm. And with this film, it's like, this film's clearly trying to create this intense experience that it makes you empathize mm -hmm. with the people that have to do this shit every day and that's exactly what the film does i mean at the end of the day these are fully militarized men competing against mostly local militia mm. like they're not like they're not all trained professionals yeah. these people just guys with cell phones yeah <laughs> brick phones and it's like at the end of the, and the, you know even Andrew uh, Anthony, Ma is Anthony, yeah, Anthony character Mackie character yeah. makes a comment that the bombs are just a collection of things you'd find at Radio Shack absolutely yeah this is what they're fighting you know it, it's uh, and I think that to the when we watch a film and we talk about grounded realism we're talking about the grounded realism within the film we feel 
that the film is educating us correctly to make us believe, even if it's not 100% accurate to real life, mm. that the reality of the film is real to us as the viewer. Yeah. That's... So when they make those comments that it's not realistic to real life, it's like, it's such a redundant comment because it's yeah. like, you're taking stuff from with outside of the production's context, outside of the pieces that you're watching's context. You yeah. know, if it's believable within the film, then it is, and it's presented to us like it's grounded realism and reality. We as the viewer are going to either accept or reject that. And this film does it so well that we accept it. Yeah. Very easily. I think it just, it gets enough details correct. Cause I remember I rewatched the opening scene on YouTube before I went back and watched the mm-hmm. full film. And I should clarify for those of you who didn't listen to last week's episode, I have seen this film before mm-hmm. when I was like maybe 11 years old. Mm-hmm. And I was obviously able to appreciate it way more this time yep. watching it. Ah, uh, oh, why is the sniper battle still going? <laughs> we'll get to that soon. Um, but what I loved about that opening scene, people were pointing out, is just the detail of like when when that bomb initially goes off and it's the beautiful slow motion shots which are probably probably a little out of the realm for what the rest of the film has done in terms of cinematography but it just looks so good yeah it's pretty excellent yeah i actually the stylism of that stuff is can't go wrong i loved it it's gorgeous but even like it is it is the only part that pushes surrealism though like you go to from an extent, gr- but it's f- it's it reminds me if you're watching a documentary, it's like the nature documentaries. You're getting time lapse of flowers blooming yeah, up and true. stuff like that. If you're going for a documentary, well, style, you're really trying to capture the magnitude of this explosive and exactly. the danger of this explosive. Yeah, it's just classic cinema filmmaking. Um, my name is Martin Scorsese. Yeah. Um, but even like the detail, and like you see the blood spurt out. Where even though he's wearing this suit, it's like that's for the aftershock. His brain matter is still going to explode from the impact of... And you can see that if you watch it carefully, the blood sort of spurting onto the inside of the helmet. And it's mm. like... Stuff like that is really great. And it's like... Those details are so good. You can't complain when they, they snipe someone from 800 meters away. No. It's like, shut up. <laughs> I, That's my professional opinion. Shut up. I just think... So, obviously, now we've talked about the, the cinematography. Let's talk more a bit more about the story. Yep. Um some amazing performances from Renner and, and Mackie here in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely. I mean, these both of them be very close to, for Mackie at least, were, it's pretty close to a breakout role for him. Renner yeah, was probably sure. on the verge of Avengers. With that yeah, point. I think they were both at least two years away from being in Avenger movies. Because mm. this came out the same year as Iron Man, or at least was you know, produced and made the same year as I'm in, but of course, Anthony Mackie, he's a bit further down, further in the MCU. Yeah. And then Jeremy Renner, I think his first film was the original four. Yes, it is. So, oh, I know Anthony Mackie's introduced in, um, uh, I'm thinking of Don Cheadle. I'm sorry. Cause Anthony Mackie's in the, uh, Captain America. Falcon. So that's like six, seven years away. Mm-hmm. I apologize for that. This is very early on for him. Yeah, for sure. But Jeremy Renner, especially two years, and he got nominated uh, for an Oscar for that performance mm. in here so it, it looks like uh, the Marvel guys really liked the Hurt Locker yeah because at least four or five actors in this film are in at least one Marvel film at some point <laughs> and for those two especially it's it's an excellent um, you mm. know sort of co-performance between the two the more straight laced and then this shotgun kind of cowboy character that is sort of just 
at first comes off kind of arrogant and fearless of death, but is actually yeah. obviously under the surface cracking. Um, and we really get to see uh, these two develop and grow a relationship with each mm. other and sort of, to an extent, swap roles in their... Mm. Or at least watch as the the war goes on the the mental toll it takes on both of them yeah i think they definitely have different responses i think the key is and this is in the little they have like a little quote at the beginning of the film i don't remember the exact quote but it's essentially talking about how war can be an addiction Mm -hmm. and i feel like jeremy renner is his character here is or um william james sergeant william james whatever his name is um he's the guy with the addiction so he's cocky and sort of plays it off but we see over time that he just can't help himself but to put himself in all these incredibly risky um, situations mm-hmm. and he even gets um, uh, god what's his name uh, Owen I think it's Owen who mm-hmm. gets injured and you know he's got a broken leg for six months because you know Jeremy Wennett needs his fix he needs the guy to be the hero in a way but Anthony Mackie's character he's the guy that by by the end of the film he's the one that's he's crying and saying I can't do this anymore yeah. you know, he's not addicted to this at all and I, I don't know, I can't remember if he went into why they did in the first place, but you got to imagine, I mean, it all goes back to 9-11, really, <laughs> this kind of yeah. stuff. I mean, this takes place in 2004, but the idea that you're serving your country and it's like, this isn't worth it, it's too dangerous and too scary and he wants a kid. Yeah. So there's two, you're right, there's two very different responses. Whereas uh, character's already got a kid, he's got yep. a wife that's divorced him, yet still lives with him, there's yep. a very odd ten- tension-based relationship there. Um, but I mean, Renner's character, although it, yeah, like you said, addicted to war, um, still has his cracks. He's still human, of course, yeah. and and feels a lot of stuff. He doesn't let a lot of people onto how he feels, but we obviously, as the observer, get to see this. Yeah, we get it's, to see the scenes when everyone else has left and he's in bed with the helmet on, or when he's talking to his his child near the end of the film who that child's never going to remember that conversation but we the audience do yeah. we know what he's talking about when he's he finds he discovers the kid's been chopped up and put a bomb in him mm. yeah who's selling him dvds which is one of the most gruesome sort of real grounded scenes yeah um i think like i was saying that this film's amazing its biggest feat or achievement is its amazing ability to go from these tension-filled, phonetic, frantic, chaotic-paced scenes to scenes of pure tension, uh, like that are so slow and plodding. Yeah. And so the contrast between what you think is going, you know, like there are very few firefights in this. There's you know, a sniper battle and quite a few defusal situations, but they're still phonetic and chaotic, these... But they... All the way they hold tension, and even in scenes where none of this is happening, there's still a feeling of tension yeah, and pressure my, building. My favourite... And this is a bit of an odd one. I'm, I am saving one for the highlight scene, of course, but yeah. there's one specific um, bomb defusal, defusal moment that I love the way they deal with the tension is it's one of the early ones when they're called out there's a car and it's mm-hmm. rigged with explosives and even though they've sort of taken care of it it's someone else's job to come and he's like no I'm going to go in and do this myself I'm going to climb in the car and find the wires to cut yeah. 
uh and meanwhile the other two are up on rooftops and they're getting sort of cornered there's people filming them and this is something else is just mm. the idea of all the people around just observing just watching you have no clue who is just watching mm. or is trying to kill you and to create that paranoia to put us in the, to create in the viewer that level of paranoia that these soldiers are feeling mm. all through showing and not saying exactly anything yeah is, is excellent and it's funny because this film without being too on the nose about it captures the same sort of psychological torment that something like apocalypse now does mm. or or you know a lot of uh war films tend to cover particularly stuff from coppola um between that or kubrick's full metal jacket and stuff like that where they but i actually think those films are a little bit more on the nose about it than right. this film i think is a bit more subtle and grounded and um it, is sure it's got its level of patriotism to it i guess but it's not... i don't know if it necessarily does the hurt locker i mean you think i think it's still there i mean there's... they're not ever framed as if they're the bad guys or what they're doing is wrong so i know but... there's a degree of patriotism in all of her work to an extent to an extent Especially i feel like on the u.s stuff I feel like they, these characters, and yeah, they're, do, they're probably doing this for patriotic reasons, but like they hate being in this situation. They hate doing this. So I think that sort of mm. speaks towards, it's definitely anti-war in that sense. Because the film's trying to say, like, people shouldn't have to go through this tension. Yeah, but you can be anti-war and still have a degree of patriotism to you. Yeah, for sure. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, go, I mean, it's the same way people accuse. I would argue things like this or Black Hawk Down are patriotic mm. films um just because they uh don't shy away from the spoils of the you know the horrid visuals of war yeah um there's still uh, a sense of duty that these characters mm. feel particularly renner's character um i think that yeah they're addicted to war and they're addicted to the heroism side but they still have that good nature heroism to them mm. And for the most part, I mean, we're not ever sympathizing with, throughout the whole film, we're not sympathizing with any of the insurgent soldiers. They're no. framed from start to finish as, as completely either nameless villains or, or their actions speak for them, you know? The only... Um, you're the, definitely right. The only with... sympathizer characters get killed. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, you got the kid... Obviously not a soldier, no. but there's a bit of sympathy on that part. And then there's even that scene where Jeremy Ferner sort of breaks into the house and the guy, his reaction to having a gun held to his head is like, oh, you know, sit down, you're my guest, come and sit down. So you're right, because you said we're only talking about soldiers here. Yes. None of them get sympathy. No. That is correct. Um, not like but... it's something in like American Sniper, for instance, mm. where, you know, the opposite to Cooper's Sniper is given, you know, Eastwood gives the i i think it's iraq for afghanistan for i think it's the same time period yeah for sure uh, that see that's a very that... patriotic film though i would absolutely say that's a patriotic okay. film i mean that's eastwood though that's clean eastwood yeah <laughs> i mean it's an interesting comparison because like even bigelow's other film the one i watched zero dark 30 a lot of people have claimed that that's very pro-torture and i sat and watched it, and i was like no it's not what are you talking about like <laughs> It's not being like, hey, torture is a great thing. 
It's, I didn't get that vibe. <laughs> what were you going to say? Yeah. I guess it's how you they frame it. If people are enjoying, the, like, it depends on how, it depends how they frame torture scenes, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, it's, in, in the case of Zero Dark Thirty, you have Jessica Chastain observing tor- tortures at first and being very, like, turned off by it. And then at one point, she becomes so desperate, she ends up torturing someone herself mm. and then has, like, a very big reaction after like she can't believe she's done this and then, i would say this yeah. film uh, i would say this film has that sort of i mean obviously it, it mostly is talking about the deteriorating mental state of soldiers and stuff like mm. that but it never it's not anti-war like something like apocalypse now is where you're literally seeing right. your soldiers subvert humanity and lose their humanity as as they go further down the, the river and stuff whereas these characters consistently, particularly Renner's character, the longer it goes on, feels more regret for the more loss of life that he's mm. installing on people. You know, when he can't save that man who has the bomb strapped to his chest because yes. he runs out of time, he feels guilt. He feels guilt when he finds the kid with a bomb in him, but still has that sense of duty that he can't bring himself to just blow the kid up. Yeah, it's like literally until the last possible second when he says, I'm going to run. Because <laughs> if I stay one second longer, I'm not going to survive this yeah. explosion. So, no, I think there are they are similar films in the sense that this does explore uh, the psychological effects. You're right. I, I don't think it's as uh, flashy as Ameri- uh, American. I was going to say American now. <laughs> <laughs> um, apocalypse now. That's mm-hmm. the word I'm looking for. Because, look, I mean, there are those scenes where they're sort of the boys are you know they're wrestling and hustling mm. and and he gets so into it that um anthony mackie ends up holding a knife to his throat and yeah. it's like i think it's in a in a more subtle way where he's maybe not losing his mind but the addiction is affecting him in a way that's very unhealthy yes and i think that's evident throughout the film and it's evident in the decision he makes at the end of the film yeah but yeah do we yeah. want to talk about the ending just a little bit or like what at all the final 15 yeah, sort of yeah, I suppose. Yeah, so obviously following um, the, like I was saying, that that final uh, failed bomb defusal mm. situation, um, there's an exchange between Renner and Mackie in the car in which Mackie breaks down and pretty much, yeah, concedes he doesn't want to do this anymore and he wants a kid and um, we really see the final sort of straw for his character. Um, and then... Renner goes, yeah, he goes, goes back home. Goes back home, and has a very uh, <laughs> exchange that his kid is not going to remember. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting because so I I teased this last week, and then now that we're here, when mm. I did watch this film when I was like eleven years old or however old I was at the time, and I was of you know I was a kid, I was expecting more action explosions like Iron Man and. Um, I just remember, you know, the, oh, the sniper scene was very long. You know, I was I was sort of going to bed and falling in and out of sleep. But the thing that always stuck with me, even as a kid, it this the way they structured this film is so perfect because it, it's very subtle the the narrative thrust because we're counting down. We're counting down from at the start about thirty nine days mm-hmm. from the uh, Bravo team uh, rotating out. Yes, so they, they leave and. You're counting down, like, oh my god, look at all these awful things they have to go through. We're getting down to you know, 36, 30, 26, down to two in that last instance. 
and the final shot when it comes back and when Jeremy Renner's like I'm going back in and he's now in the I think the Delta team and it comes up 365 days until rotation like even as a kid I was like damn that hits hard because he mm. you've been through it this film puts you through this and it's like ready to go again yeah yeah <laughs> um I, that was just such a powerful ending I think just absolutely. text just the text did it for me yeah showing and not telling yeah exactly <laughs> no worries showing text written English text <laughs> are you ready to move into highlight scenes buddy um let me just take a quick look I feel like we've actually covered a fair bit which is quite nice um <laughs> It's I'll just like it's our job. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll just finish this. Um, I'll finish the point I was making early with the reason why that. I guess this goes in the highlight scenes. It's a good segue. Mm. So the reason why that specific scene when he's in the car trying to disarm the bomb, uh, was so effective from a, from a tension building. So obviously you got the guards on the roof mm-hmm. being like, "Oh, they're watching us. They're watching us. Take cover. What they're watching us." Um, and just the way the music's going, he's trying to find the clippers and. The way they use sound as well in this film is great because that's when they use the windshield wipers of the car. Mm-hmm. He accidentally turns them on and there's something about the way it scrapes. This is so... like what, Just like nails on the chalkboard. Exactly, exactly. And they do the same in the prologue when like a plane goes above during like an mm-hmm. intense conversation. It's just really clever little bits of sound they do. Um, but just the way they drop that tension immediately when he just... He finds it, he clips it, he throws the, the device outside the car. Yeah. And the music sort of still fading away. We're still not. It's not like a drop where we're like, oh, and it's safe. Mm-hmm. He clicks. He, he cuts the wires. The music drops. Whew, we're safe. That doesn't happen. It's sort of this after wave mm-hmm. where he throws it, and he's like, guys, we're done. And everyone's looking around like, oh, oh, it's okay, it's okay. And then it just sort of that that kind of ah, oh, it's so good. Yeah, it's, it's the diegetic sound design is easily <laughs> one of the strongest points of the film for sure. Yeah, wonderful. All right, well, Zeke, tell me what your highlight scene is for the Hurt Locker. Um, probably uh, the uh, and it's one of the heavier scenes in the film. Probably the mm. slaughterhouse sequence where, and I call it the sla- where they discover they take the colonel or the doc out with them. And they go to uh, the house and discover, obviously, the kid's been butchered and a bomb's uh, been okay, sewn yep, into yep, him. Yep. And just that sequence, that creates a different kind of tension. They use people tension in that one, mm. where the doc is talking to locals and he starts off being very polite to them. And, and uh, They're trying to load rocks onto like this cart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I know what you're talking and about. And he eventually leads to him going... Um, you know, like, go away, like, shoot. And at this point, Red has sorted out everything with his kid. We've got to see a really good emotional weight from him. First time we really get to see him heavily emote. Yep. And, yeah, obviously it leads to them getting in the car and the colonel turns around and out of nowhere, on his first step, a bomb goes from under where the cart was. (sighs) The way they use explosion, because it's so unpredictable. No. But you yeah. have this sense of impending doom. At some point, something bad was going to happen. Yeah. And we're cutting between everyone, so we sort of think that one of our characters is going to be affected in this scene. And obviously, when it ends up being him, mm. because he's obviously the least aware, it does also give a lot of payoff to characters like like Owen's character, mm. who's been suffering seri- with serious sort of PTSD and kind of getting over the death and life. And the fact that they don't find a body... Yeah, there's no way to find a body in there. There's just a helmet. Yeah. 
and and you know we we know from earlier in the film because Ren has talked about that if you pretty much step on one of these that there won't be a body and even Anthony Mackie when they would they sort of fake talking but not really pretending to mm. kill um Jeremy Renner when mm. he's going down to grab his, his shoes yeah. or you know his gloves sorry um and they say something like that like oh you wouldn't find it but you might find a helmet or a bit of mm. hair yeah so it's it's kind of almost uh, foreshadowed several yeah. times that specific and death it's a really good sequence that pays off a lot of different characters in that moment mm. um that's probably the strongest for me in the film yeah that's a great scene i mean the, it's full of great scenes mm-hmm. um and i i feel like the prologue would be like too easy yep. to say uh, my one and i'm gonna bring this back has to be the the sequence with the sniper or the sniper battle rip um, ralph finds yeah <laughs> rip a lot of people yeah. <laughs> this guy really... <laughs> finds just get bipped in after about five minutes yeah if only that's how harry potter went about with Voldemort but, <laughs> but apparently shoot not. him with a really heavy sniper off <laughs> yeah Harry I why still, didn't you think I of that I still don't even know why not a single wizard used a gun but okay I know like muggle technology you can't use in the school in Hogwarts I've read that somewhere but you're right what at the train station why don't they just snipe him yeah. <laughs> why don't they get a bomb on him I don't know <laughs> Any, uh, anyway I don't know <laughs> save it for a Harry Potter episode exactly yeah oh, 90s technology Harry <laughs> Potter uh, <laughs> no so it has to be the sniper scene and again this is just a callback to what I was saying when I watched this as a kid I must have watched a part of this this is the memory I have I must have watched a part of this film while going to bed which is silly mm-hmm. I never do that now I never watch a movie that I haven't seen before while going to bed I always put some TV show on that I've seen a million times or I never watch anything new because why? Why would I do that? I'm mm-hmm. going to fall asleep. So I must have done it then. And I remember when the sniper sequence happened, it's like, oh, there's action. It's exciting. They're shooting at each other. And me, like, dropping in and out of sleep, sort of fading in and out and waking up. And the, the it's still going on, this sniper. And I'm like, this is still going on. It's so long. But it actually kind of zeroes back <laughs> to Zero Dark Thirty where there's a scene where they're waiting for this possible informant to arrive to give him information about Bin Laden and stuff. And it's just a very similar scene where uh, Bigelow drags it out so long and creates so much tension from waiting for each step to occur. And with this sniper battle, I counted, it took more than 15 minutes since the first shot was fired before we cut to a new scene it's so bold i love it yeah i i would say it's it's it warrants the 15 minutes because we really do see the weight mm. of uh you know obviously with with a lot of the you know fines as men getting killed off that's like fine mm. but it's fine they're dead <laughs> no but like i know what you mean they obviously don't carry the same sort of weight but obviously no. when when ralph finds his character dies instantaneously mm. from a shot there's no bleed out death monologue he's just dead and then a couple of times they call back to him when they need ammo and stuff yeah they, and they just... need to clean the blood off the ammo and yeah. that's the whole thing and what they're doing there is adding so many different compl- like what she's doing there is she's you know she's creating so many she's letting this unit mm. this very small tight unit work together as a group you're fleshing out the characters like Owen, who's already suffering clearly signs of PTSD and, yep. and sort of war fatigue. And 
him having to clean the blood off and get the you know the ammo out of a dead guy and that sort of stuff but then seeing Renner be the one to calm him down and get him back into sort of a state where he is still able to help them and yeah. utilize them and having you know at this point there's still a lot of tension in this squads so this this yeah, gunfight is trio a, yeah this firefight is such a huge turning point for them as a team because then it leads to them having fun together and mm. um you know yeah because it cuts straight to them drinking and dancing and, so this is yeah, really their fighting. turning point together and obviously Mackie and Renner have to work together spotting and switching the ammo and there's some clear line serious communication you know at this point we've had Mackie punch Renner in the face <laughs> Mackie fake talk about <laughs> killing about Renner that. But to a point where it's uncomfortable when he's trying to talk. Yeah, they never him. say JK's just kidding. There's they never say a degree that. of seriousness mm. there, and so we honestly feel like when we've watched all of this cohesive unit, this other unit, just be completely taken out mostly with a couple of, you know, a couple of soldiers who are more just dealing with their loss. Mm. How? What's the hope for our group? Like this group that has not been communicating and directly talking to each other the whole time. And yeah. That really helps add to the pressure and dynamic to it and makes you believe that they are in actual danger, which is exactly yeah, what you want. of course. Well, especially because people are dying throughout the film. So there's always that level of danger. But you're right, just the fact that they have to come together to do this job, to survive and get to the next day before rotation. So Absolutely. It's a brilliant film. No worries. Well, The Hurt Locker <laughs> is out in wide release. I mm. don't know if it's on... I don't think it's on Netflix. It's not on Netflix or Stan, unfortunately. You can watch Zero Dark 30 on Stan. There you go. <laughs> but otherwise, you might have to get a home release or buy it off YouTube. Speaking of streaming platforms, Jake, what is new in streaming platforms and cinemas this week? Well, this is an interesting, interesting week. I'll say that, Zeke. Uh, coming to Netflix this week is Auntie Donna's Big Old House of Fun... Uh, this is actually a little like a mini series. Are you a fan of Auntie Donna? I love me some Auntie Ah, oh, there you go. Um, I don't really watch him, but I, I had a feeling you'd be a big fan. Haven't so. you done well, Jack? <laughs> <laughs> so that's coming to Netflix this week. So good for them. That's huge for them. Um, let's see. A uh, Jingle Jangle, a Christmas Journey. It should be called Bingo Bongo. In my in my personal opinion, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, Jingo Jango, a Christmas Journey. She's a once joyful toy maker. Decades after his apprentice has betrayed him, find new hope when his bright young granddaughter appears on the doorstep. And also for those uh, fans of The Crown, the fourth season drops this Sunday. Uh, coming to stand is Sidney Lament's The Fugitive Kind. So if you're a fan of 12 Angry Men, that's another one of his films from back in the day, coming to stand. Also, the American Pie films and The Blur Witch Project. So that's quite fun. Uh, coming to Disney Plus this week, you have Call of the Wild. So that's a new film with Harrison Ford, um, which I thought was not that bad. It's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's only for Aussies. So welcome, well, well done to us. And also Inside Pixar, which is a doco series about, I guess, make Pixar and like the, the films that they made and stuff and all that. Uh, classics. If you want to see The Exorcist in cinemas, you can. So from this Thursday, the 12th of November, you can go to Hoyts and watch The Exorcist. That's a tempting one, but it might also be a little too scary for me, Zeke, so you might have to hold my hand. I'm sure I can do that for, for you, that mate. one. And finally, new in cinemas. Uh, so actually, we're getting a couple of... Uh, you know, We're very lucky here in Percy. We get a lot of Netflix, the big Netflix Oscar buzz films quite early in cinemas here. Because last year, we were able to watch The Irishman a bit early. I was able to watch trial of the chicago 7 early uh we're getting a bunch more of those so this week 
is the big one, Hillbilly Elegy, which is the latest Netflix film to hit our screens. Directed by Ron Howard, a Yale law student is drawn back to his Ohio hometown regarding a family emergency. So this is based on the memoir by J.D. Vance. Stars Amy Adams and Glenn Close. And it's meant to be pretty good. So there we go. We'll see about that. And uh, oh, oh, you can also catch it uh, at Backlot. So let me clarify. So this is coming to Backlot next Sunday the 15th for mm-hmm. a one-time screening. If you can't do that, Luna have it from the 12th onwards. And I think it actually hits Netflix by the 24th or something like that. So it's not a huge wait uh, for that film. And finally... Oh, right. So this is actually what I was alluding to earlier. So the big Oscar buzz film, Animite, uh, which stars Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan. Uh, I think there's only two or three screenings you can catch at the... I think it's the London uh, Film Festival. Spicy. Spicy. uh, At Luna... Uh, oh, sorry, the British Film Festival. Yes. My, my apologies, Brits. Mm. Uh, so look out for tickets on that. I think Friday the 13th, this Friday, is the first screening. Uh, so we may or may not go to that one, Zeke, but uh, we should look into that. And, of course, that focuses Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan share a romantic relationship in the 1840s. So, yeah, that was my very unfocused, wild, <laughs> what's coming to cinemas next week segment. It. No worries. Well, we're not doing... Uh, that film next week on the show or any of those other films no but Jake we are doing a new film coming out yeah but what are we watching we're doing one that I think this came out a few weeks ago if I'm not mm-hmm. incorrect wasn't Just too double, long ago double negative not too long exactly um, so I'm very excited about this one because I haven't seen the original I don't know if you've seen I have not any of these other films okay well there you go uh, next week on the show we're watching Borat subsequent movie film Fourteen years ago, I released a movie film which brought great shame to Kazakhstan. But now I was instructed to return to Yankee Land to carry out secret missions. I go to America! Follow up to the 2006 comedy film, we are reunited with the fictitious television journalist Borat, who goes on very real life adventures. I should have clarified because it says fictional character, real life adventures. It's meant to be a contrasting thing, but uh, now that's my delivery of that (laughs) of that story. I've not seen the original film, nor have I seen the subsequent movie film. Uh, But uh, I will be catching both during the week, Um, and yeah, I'm really keen to see it. Um, Yeah, it's it's never been something that. I didn't grow up with it. I didn't watch Bruno. I never watched that. No. We kind of did grow up with it in a weird, distance way, though. Yeah, it was around us. But I just never... I've seen... I've seen The Dictator. That's about it. I think I've seen some of The Dictator. I don't know if I've watched it from start to finish, though. So I'll have to catch... Honestly, catch a couple of his films. Because particularly Borat, I think that there's more to meet the eye with that film I think Borat is way more respected than Bruno is that's my understanding of it okay but well, um we will I'm... have to get Prime uh maybe a free month subscription for Prime to watch this one I think that's how we're doing it there we go but until then <laughs> thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast I was Zeke I was Jake and we'll catch you next week with Borat subsequent movie film <laughs>